We are calling this sermon series Calibrate, because when you calibrate something, you, you are realigning something to a standard. And of course, our standard is Jesus Christ. He writes seven letters that are given to the churches in what's known in New Testament times as Asia Minor, our present-day Turkey. The messenger is carrying these letters. They're, so they're first read at the end of the first century, about 96 A.D. John is the one who has penned these words. But the letters themselves are written by Jesus. They tell us what Jesus cares about in the church, and that's why we want to pay close attention. Because what matters is not how we assess a church or what a healthy church is, but what he says about the church. Now, I established it very well last week in my message that I'm a cheapskate. I buy my wife gifts using Groupons. And so yesterday morning, I'm sitting in the den, and she's sitting next to me, and I I said, you know, I'm really struggling with this sermon tomorrow, or the introduction to the sermon. She understands my angst in sermon writing. And so she said, well, you know, what, what's it about? And I said, well, it's the Pergamon Church, and it's, it's about being a bit fraudulent in your faith, and, and, or not, not real, it's not the real thing. And she looked at me and said, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you know that bracelet you got me? This one, she said, you know, it's, it's the $12.99 one I got with a Groupon. She said, you know, it's, I, I think it's supposed to look like the real one. <laughs> I thought, the real one? So I Google charm bracelet, and I go to Pandora.com. The starter bracelet is $250. You add charms. 80 to $100 each, and at that point, I was so glad I knew my wife would never be comfortable wearing a bracelet that expensive, <laughs> and that I had chosen wisely. <laughs> at the end of this letter, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He wants us to be a church filled with people of great integrity, upright character, not, in a, not just in a moral sense but in what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Appearances can be deceiving, but God will not be deceived, and he can see us. He knows our lives. There's nothing hidden from him, and what he calls for is the real thing. So let's visit the church at Pergamum. You've heard the letter read. Let's consider this place. First of all, it's a place of great learning. In this part, in this time period, the ancient world had two great libraries, the two greatest ones. The first one was in Alexandria in northern Egypt. That library had over, over 3,000 volumes in it. Uh, the, this, the, the library at Berg, Pergamum was the second greatest library of the day. It had over 200,000 volumes. It was at Pergamum, in fact, that they moved from using papyrus and they learned to write on animal skins. That's why even today somebody gets their degree and they say, you know, I got my sheepskin. Well, this is where that idea was birthed uh, from the city of Pergamum. Learning is a great process. 
And we all are different degrees of learning throughout our lifetime. And, and we have also learned that learning in IQ doesn't have anything to do with SQ, that is our spiritual quotient. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in the first century that in the latter days, people will always be learning but never come to a knowledge of the truth. Doesn't that depict so many in our culture today? You know, you can go to university campuses and you can certainly find people, uh, professors that are devoted followers of Jesus, but they are few and far between. If you want to find the source of secular thinking and liberalism, typically you start at university campuses where so many young people are swallowed up in secular worldview. And so in the middle of, of, of great learning, we have to be careful, even in the church, that as we learn the Bible, it is not merely head knowledge. Just because we know what the Bible says does not mean we're living transformed lives. I've spoken to people, I may have told you about a man who came here years ago, probably 15 years ago. He sat right up there in the corner of the balcony, and I saw him out in the foyer one day, and I got to talk, and he was on, at that time, Palm Pilots. Remember Palm Pilots? That's ancient history, right? And I said, what are you reading there? And he said, oh, I'm reading the Gospel of Thomas. I said, the Gospel of Thomas? I said, I saw you reading the church. Is that what you were reading? He says, yeah, all you're talking about, I've already heard all that. So... You can gain a lot of knowledge, but never really grow in hunger and learning about what it means to live fully a transformed life, growing in depth and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Pergamum was also a place of great religion. This was the time of the Roman Empire, and in the Roman Empire, they were pantheists. That is, God was in everything, grass and trees and sky and everything, which is totally unbiblical teaching. Uh, they were also polytheistic. They had many gods, and they didn't care how many gods you had. If Jesus is one of your gods, hey, no problem. We'll accept him too. Now, in this great city, Jesus said, "This is, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Isn't that interesting? Where Satan has his throne. If somebody asks you where you're from, you may, you may note it. By your location, you know, like you, you, depending on who you're talking to in the world, you may say, well, I'm from Avon, I'm from Plainfield, Mooresville, west side of Indianapolis, I'm from the metropolitan, I'm from the Indianapolis area, we might say, or I'm from Indiana. You know, when I'm overseas, I'll say, well, I'm from the state of Indiana because they, many places where I go, they haven't even heard of Indianapolis necessarily, certainly not Plainfield, <laughs> Plainfield, garden city of the world, right? Um, and... I, I'm from Springfield, Ohio. It's where I grew up. Now, I go back to Springfield, and it's a pretty depressed place. I mean, it, it, it has sunk from 90,000 when I left there 30 years ago, and now it's down to 60,000. It's quite a, you know, you might say, well, that's what happens when you left. You know, it just fell apart. <laughs> but what if somebody asked you where you lived? Oh, I'm where Satan's throne is. That's where I'm from. What, what did Jesus even mean? You know, we're not... Sure. And by, by the way, before I get into that, let, let me say this. Um, you know, Satan is not everywhere. <laughs> and I hear believers talk like this. We view him a little bit like Santa Claus. He knows if you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if... You... Well, you get the idea, right? That is not Satan. 
He is not omnipresent, omniscient, or omnipotent. He is extremely limited, although God has given him some reign and influence in the world. But there comes a time when he will be absolutely chained forever and ever. Until then, he's on the loose. He's a great student of human nature. Uh, He led the rebellion in the heavenly realms against the throne of God. And his myriad of demons followed after him. And they are at his beck and call as he attacks us and tries to undo us and destroy us in our faith. They do not ever believe that he is as powerful as we make him out. Is he powerful? Absolutely. The Bible warns us he's the prince of darkness. He comes disguised as an angel of light. And that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. But he can do a lot of damage. And so we want, do not want to be naive about his subtleties and how he works. But be wise. Now, how, what is this? What is, yeah, you live where Satan's throne is, where Satan has his throne. There are a number of possibilities. The city of Pergamum looked like, like a throne. Uh, it, it was a thousand feet high above the area around it. Um, and so it, it had sort of this great skyline that could be seen from miles. Maybe it has to do, this throne, with idolatry that happened there, the worship of Asclepius especially. Now, there were many gods there, like other Roman cities, but Asclepius was a cult that came from Babylon to Pergamum. Uh, it was a, Asclepius was a god of healing, and indicated by snake. And so this insignia is a predecessor of what we have on ambulances and, and medical paraphernalia today, where now we have the two snakes that really came from another location, but there was, this was the, 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 the predecessor of that insignia. If you had a sickness, they would put you in a dark room, and they would have snakes slither all over you all night. I will choose death, deathly being ill rather than doing that for sure. Maybe this is what Jesus is referring to. Or it may refer to the altar of Zeus, another god that was uh, honored. Uh, The altar of Zeus was at the pinnacle of the city. It was the most prominent building of the city. It was 120 feet high, and it was shaped like a horseshoe. Animal sacrifices were made there 24 hours a day. So the stench of animal flesh burning would have infiltrated the city. And you can imagine a time that would have been customary for them just to, they would have become used to that smell. While visitors might have find it extremely offensive. You can still see the ruins of that, of that altar in Berlin today. Maybe Jesus is referring to the, the worship of the emperor Domitian. He was on the throne of Rome at that time over the Roman Empire. And so there was an imperial cult and worship, emperor worship took place. And Pergamum was the first Roman city to build a temple to a living emperor. So in a number of ways, maybe Jesus meant all of these. Maybe he meant one in particular. We don't know. All we know is we have to be careful. Now, when Jesus looks at the church there... He says in the text here, to the, in this letter, he says, I know where you live. Now, what that means is more than I know your city, I think it means I know what you're up against. I know what is threatening your faith. 
I know that once, what's, what Satan wants to use, how he wants to subtly come in and destroy you and tear down your confidence. I love that about the Lord. As he scans our audiences today, he can say to every one of us, I know where you live. In other words, I know what you're up against. I know the tool in your life that Satan wants to use to take you under. I know your health issue, or I know the grief you're going through. I know the ch- your children's problems that are difficult for you to deal with, or your grandchildren you're, you're concerned about. I know about your financial struggles. I know about your sense of loss or emptiness inside. I know how Satan would like to come in and use any one of these as tools to discourage you, to, to cause you to question God's love, my love and faithfulness, and how much I want to be woven into your life. He's saying, I know where you live. I think it's a message as, a, as an assembly, but it's also a message to us individually. So let's just take a moment now, can we? And just whatever that is in your life now, Whatever you think Satan's tool is right now to discourage you, to trouble you, to interrupt your peace or your joy, your exhilaration, your lilt for life, whatever that is, I want to give you some time of silence. Let's just take those things before the Lord. Oh, God, thank you for knowing everything about us, even what we're wrestling with this very day. Give us victory through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this Pergamum was obviously an intriguing place. Now, Jesus then gives praise to the church naming three different things. First of all, he says, my name is held true. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now, there's nothing that we care more in the ministry of Plainfield Christian Church than the name of Jesus. I've always been uh, found aberrant of a church that seems to, to market their name, the name of the church, more than the name of Jesus. And I think we all have to be careful about that, that it's not our church we tout, it's the name of Jesus that we hold up. What we care about is the kingdom of God and people being Christ followers, right? Can I get an amen about that? And so for right now, you happen to be in this assembly. God may take you somewhere else, but it's the name of Jesus that is what is the one we are committed to. We care about that name, and we revere him, we live for him, we love him, and we want to continue. I pray that every time you come to this worship service, it's Jesus' name that's held up. I, I trust that will always be true, and his name protected and revered. You know, sometimes I'll sit with people I don't know, and I'll say, well, tell me about your journey of faith. And invariably, you know what they tell me? Where they attend church or where they grew up as a kid. And then I'll say, okay, now I know where you went to church. Now tell me about your journey of faith. (laughs) Because it's two different things. You could be a great church attender and never have much to say about your faith, about your walk with Christ, about the way he has changed your heart and life. 
We have to be very careful about that. Our testimony is not about what church we attend. It's about what Jesus has done to save our souls and change our lives, right? And so we want to keep upholding his name, make sure he's the center of our testimony. He also says, my faith is not denied. Once a year, these believers, well, not only believers, all all citizens of Rome were to pay tribute to Caesar, saying, Caesar is Lord. Now, mind you, Rome didn't care if you said Jesus is Lord. They didn't care if you said that. What they cared about is if you said only Jesus is Lord. That's when you got in trouble with the, with the guilds, uh, with, with, with the other citizenry, citizenry, with the law, and they couldn't do that. They couldn't say Caesar is Lord because Jesus was their Lord. And so the world is watching us, and by everything about us, they ought to be able to say Jesus is Lord. Is that true of you? Is it true of me that no matter where I am, what I'm doing, privately, publicly, It's clear Jesus is Lord. That's what he notes. He notes that in the Pergamum church. He says, my martyrs are dying. He says, Antipas, my faithful witness, has been put to death in your city. Many were dying for the faith. I told you before how Nero would dip believers in tar and then light them afire in his gardens, and he would ride through his gardens enjoying that view. Uh, they would order sometimes believers to be put in leather bags, and then they put in the leather bags with the believers, a believer, scorpions and poisonous snakes, tie the bag and throw them into the sea because of the life of faith in Jesus they had chosen. How blessed we are to be in a place of worship freely today. Never take that for granted. There are believers in the world today that would, would love, love, love to be where we are today. And have the freedom that we have in worshiping together. In spite of that, there were some problems. He says, I have a few things against you. The the main thing is worldliness. Worldliness. He says, you hold to the teaching of Balaam. We learn about Balaam in the Old Testament. Balaam was a prophet. He wasn't a a Gentile, uh, Jewish prophet. He was a Gentile prophet. And Balak was king of Moab at a time when God's children, God's people, the Israelites, were moving from Egypt toward the promised land. And Moab, Moab's king, Balak, got wind of what the God of Israel had done among them, and he was frightened about them. And so Balak called for Balaam to come pronounce a curse on the Israelites. Well, Balaam sought the counsel of God. And God said, don't do it. But Balak had this money for Balaam. Because Balaam said, well, what's it worth to you? And it was a great sum of money. And all Balaam could think about was his fat bank account. And so he tried to figure out a way that he could go see Balak and sort of satisfy him, but not really pronounce boldly a curse against people. In other words, he wanted to try to find a way where he could please God and please Balak. Now, in the New Testament, whenever he's referred to, he's a picture of greediness. But here Jesus uses him as a picture of worldliness, kind of one step in the Lord and one step in in God and obeying him. And that, friends, just sickens God. The Bible says, love, love not the world, 
nor the things of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that God is trying to rob us of pleasure or, or fun or entertainment. That's not what this is about at all. It's just a, the, what, what, what we enjoy is to be different from the world's style of enjoyment. If you, if you party like an unbeliever while claiming to be a Christian, you're out of line. If, if, the, if, your, if your speech pattern resembles that of the world, it is unfitting to you being a disciple of Christ. If your humor can be racist or raunchy, it is unchristlike. If you have let the, 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 the drive for money and things take hold of you, and you, you see your heart growing greedy, which is a hard thing for us to see in ourselves, or materialism at any level. You have to guard that. It, is so, it can invade our hearts so carefully. We have, so, we have this sex-saturated society, and, uh, and, and, and we, can, we can be leaning in the world. We can start thinking, well, you know, sex outside of marriage, they're really going to get married. They do love each other. Or we're older in our lives. We have the social security. We really need to move in together you know, to, to just take care of our, our financial needs. A, a little winking, just a little bit of porn maybe won't be too bad or an unhealthy sexual flirtation with someone outside of marriage. I mean, it's all evil, friends. And we can't have anything to do with the world system. Maybe there are activities at your work that, that show, just hint at some integrity problems. It's not true embezzlement, you know, but just a little thing's enough to keep the boss satisfied. You see, and, the, and Jesus says in the letter, the Nicolaitans among you, they're an example. They're an example. And the second problem, of course, was they were tolerating them. The Nicolaitans were the ones who were evidently, most believed, were sort of mixing sexual immorality with grace. And you can put any sin there you want. It's whenever a church gets to the point that we really don't confront sin and its evil and how black it really is. You see, the, the Bible does portray Satan as a roaring lion. We're pretty good at roars. The biggies... Like today, I don't think there's anybody here planning to commit adultery. There's nobody here planning to, to embezzle from their company. There's nobody here planning to murder anybody. Those are the biggies. Those are the roaring lion times. But you go back to the garden. When you read the Genesis account, do you see Satan there, the serpent, as a roaring lion? Of course not. He's a whispering serpent. When you see Jesus in the wilderness of temptation at the outset of his ministry, praying and fasting, is he a roaring lion? Not at all. He's a whispering serpent. And this is where believers get in trouble because he starts whispering, you're a good guy. A little bit of cheating the government on your taxes. I mean, you know they take too much from you anyway. You don't have to report that. You love your wife, just, just flirting. It's just fun. It's innocent. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. God knows you love him. That's a great joke. You got to pass that one on, but be careful you tell it to who are listening nearby. There's all kinds of ways he whispers to us. Has he been whispering to you lately? It can seem so innocent, so easy. 
And yet, it's how he gets a foothold in our lives. And then this complacency, this, this toleration of it, and knowing the Nicolaitans among them, that they weren't addressing it, they forgot Paul's words to the Romans. Those, his letters would have been circulated by this time. Chapter 6 begins, what, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? That grace may abound. In other words, to make God's grace look better, we'll just sin more. Paul says, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And friends, this is one of the reasons why, you know, so many messages, we talk about relationships. You know, it's sad to me when, when I'm talking to people, especially men, you know, who's your best friend? Well, I don't really have any best friends. I got a lot of friends. You know, we all need somebody who knows us intimately. It ought to be our spouse. But even beyond that, somebody who knows us so well that they can call us on things. They can, they can see in us where we're not thinking straight, we're not behaving straight. The problem is we live such protected lives, we don't want to be fully known because we're afraid people won't like us if they really know what we're thinking. And nothing could be further from the truth for those people who have been saved by grace. We've been, we've been marked by the blood of Christ. And I tell people all the time when they feel hesitant, I say, there's nothing you can tell me that would make you less of a brother to me in Christ. Right? And we need to be a church like that. That whatever your hurts are, whatever your challenges, whatever sins you've committed, wherever you've been broken lately because Satan got his foothold, we, no, no problem. You're my brother, you're my sister, and we're going to pray through this, and we're going to establish you on a solid rock again. Right? We've got to be here for each other to, to the very end. And so the promise to the church, there are two times Jesus mentions, two things he mentions about promises. This, they're both intriguing, aren't they? Did you catch them? The first he says, to him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. How interesting is that? We learn about manna, of course, in the Old Testament when God's people are wandering in the wilderness and they don't have enough food and they cry out to God. And God gives them this special heavenly food. It's small and round, sweet, flaky. Think sanctified Frosted Flakes. That's how I picture it. And it could be baked and used in an, any number of ways. And uh, they enjoyed man. Now, what got me confused as a kid, though, my mom had a saying. She was a Kentuckian, so I suppose it came from Kentucky. And she would say, oh, when she tasted something good, oh, that tastes like manna from heaven. Well, then I read the Bible. They got sick of manna. So I don't know the mom. And mom didn't know the Bible well. Well, that's not true. I know she knew the Bible. I don't think she thought about her little colloquialism, you know. This manna that came from heaven was new every morning. You know, they'd get up in the morning and the manna would be out there. They'd have enough of the day. They were not to save it for the next day. What would happen? It would spoil, wouldn't it? It would rot. Except, except on Fridays. They got a double day worth because um, the Sabbath was coming. They weren't to go out and work on the Sabbath, and so they held a Sunday. It's teaching us, I think, that every day starts new with Jesus. Every day starts new in a relationship. Now, it's not that our past walk with him doesn't address where we are today, 
But if you try to live only on how you used to be in the Lord, how not 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 that you're not a Christian now, but I mean if you're if if you had healthy patterns ten years ago or five years ago, you can't today feed on that. That spoils and rots. That's why every morning we start with prayer. We start in the scripture. We start with a, a spiritual journey at the beginning of the day because he's new to us. Great is thy faithfulness. We sing that. His mercies are new every morning, aren't they? And it's a good thing because I need his new mercies today, right? For this day. And so the Bible says that the Ark of the Covenant that went before God's people had in it a bowl of manna. When the Babylonians came later and then stole away the Ark of the Covenant when they took over, when they took over the southern kingdom, it all disappeared. It went away regardless of what Indiana Jones says. And the Ark of the Covenant was never found, nor that bowl of hidden manna. But the Jews always believed that when the Messiah came, he would reveal the manna. He would show the bowl of manna, and by that, he would show himself to be the Messiah. Well, Jesus came and he indeed did show himself to be the Messiah. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Only he can satisfy. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Because it's our, it's our meal with him for the week, isn't it? It's our supper with him. And we hold these emblems and we cherish them. Because of the one they point to. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus was conversing. He said this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then would you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Verily, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. And so our prayer to God today is, God, always give this bread to us. We hold these emblems today to be thankful to this one who is the true bread from heaven that came to give us life. Let's remember and be thankful.